is uh, my opportunity to bring the, the Word of God to us this morning, so I invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms, we're going to look this morning at a unique psalm, uh, Psalm 117, Psalm 117. And I say unique um, because Psalm 117 happens to be the shortest psalm in the Psalter. There are three psalms that comprise a total of three verses. There's Psalms 131, 133, and 134 have three verses. Our psalm has two verses, two verses. It's making it the shortest psalm in the psalms. And not only that, but it is the short, as the shortest psalm, it's also the shortest chapter of the Bible. And uh, you might gather from that that there's not much that, uh, to, to look at here in these verses. How much can we really talk about in two verses of Hebrew poetry? And uh, that's an understandable question when you go to the bookstore or the library and you, you look at the shelf and you see that massive thousand-page tome on uh, one particular subject and you might be tempted to think, well, that, that must be a very serious work on that subject, uh, specifically compared to the, the little 15-page pamphlet that's sitting next to it. But uh, length can be deceiving. You think of John 11.35, the shortest verse in the Bible. It's three words in the Greek. And yet it's probably also the most memorable verse in the Bible because it puts on display the, the full humanity of the Lord Jesus, who is fully God, and yet here he stands in that passage uh, before the tomb of a a dear beloved friend who has just died and, and uh, displaying all of his emotion, of his humanity. And that being captured in the briefest and simplest of statements, Jesus wept. So sometimes it's the brevity of a work that can make it uh, so effective and so memorable. Derek Kidner uh, wrote of this psalm, it is the shortest Psalm proves, in fact, to be the most potent and the most seminal. And it was, uh, it was none other than Charles Haddon Spurgeon who says of this text, the, this psalm, which is very little in its letter, is exceedingly large in its spirit. So appropriately, and uh, in the providence of God, this, this psalm is, it is small, it is very short, and yet... Um, you could say that this psalm has the widest of scopes because it deals with the whole earth and everyone that dwells in it. So it's small, but it has to do with big things. It deals with the most important of themes, the resounding praise that is to be given to God by all the nations of the earth. So appropriately, and in the providence of God, this psalm, which really does summarize the the, the goal and the program of, of God's redemptive plan in the ages, um, it happens to be the very central chapter of our Bible. Of the 1,189 chapters that are comprising our Protestant Bibles, Psalm 117 falls dead center, which is providence to me. <laughs> that, uh, that as this is comprised, that this little psalm really does summarize the point of the Bible. There's a couple other things to note about this psalm before we start to look at it in detail. Psalm 117 is actually part of a collection of psalms. It's part of a collection that's known as the Egyptian Hallel. Um, there's uh, quite, a, quite a few collections that we can um, identify in the book of Psalms. Before the psalms were um, organized into the, uh, the, the book that we know them today and curated in that final form during uh, probably the time of Ezra, Ezra might, might have even um, overseen that process. Uh, these psalms existed, uh, numerous ones, as individual psalms, and sometimes they were collected into smaller collections that could be used um, liturgically in the worship of, uh, of Israel and the synagogues and the, in the temple. And um, we can see a number of these collections throughout. You're familiar with the psalms of David or the Psalms of Asaph, or the Songs of the Sons of Korah, the Songs of Ascent. These are all collections. The, the, the Hallel Song, Psalms 146 through 150, that close out the book of Psalms. These are just collections. And one of these collections is known as the Egyptian Hallel, and that's made up of Psalms 113 through 118. And our uh, psalm is among them. And it gets its name from uh, the opening verse of Psalm 114, the second in that 
that collection where it says, when Israel went out from Egypt. So it's called the Egyptian Hillel. And uh, this collection of psalms is traditionally sung at, uh, at the various feasts and festivals that Israel uh, celebrates throughout the year. Uh, but on one particular night in the year, the entire collection, the entire Egyptian Hillel is sung on one evening, and that's during the celebration of the Passover. During the Passover, Psalms 113 and 114 uh, are sung by every individual in the house that's celebrating the Passover, and it's sung before the meal begins. And then after the, uh, the meal has concluded, after the drinking of the last cup, the final four psalms, Psalms 115 through 118, are sung. And if you remember the gospel accounts, um, when the Lord was with his disciples in the upper room on the night he was arrested, um, what were they celebrating? They were celebrating the Passover. And it just so happened that in both Matthew 26.30 and Mark 14.26, the author, both those authors say, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And the hymn they sung was most likely the final four psalms of the Egyptian Hillel, one of them being our psalm, Psalm 117. So this is a psalm that about the ultimate goal of God's program for the world. What is God doing in redemptive history? Well, this psalm really sums it up. It's about what God desires most and what he deserves most, praise, praise. Praise for who he is, praise for what he's done. And what we're going to see in Psalm 117 is a call to praise as grand as any text of Scripture, and yet it is packaged in the smallest and most unassuming of forms. So with that said, let's, let's read our passage. Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol Him, all you peoples. For great is His steadfast love towards us, The faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. If you're taking notes, the the first point in our outline is this. Praise is privileged expectation. Praise is privileged expectation. This is a psalm that is all about praise. You gather that even from the fact that the very opening line and the very last line repeats this theme. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The psalmist can't help it but begin and close it with what he's really talking about. The clear command to praise the Lord. So there's no question about what the primary thrust of this this psalm is. And uh, maybe as you noted in the the title of this point, there's there's two aspects to praise. Praise is privileged expectation. There's, There's an intrinsic duality to praise. On the one hand, praise is a privilege. It's a privilege. On the other hand, Uh, It's an expectation. And uh, these two ideas really work together, so let's talk about each one of them here. First off, praise is a privilege. It's not a burden. It's not a chore. It's not an activity to be done in reluctance. It's a privilege. And the reason it's a privilege is based on the understanding of what praise really is. What is praise? How, How should we understand praise? After all, isn't praise just another word for worship? And and the answer is yes and no. Praise is a form of worship. It's an expression of worship. But worship is much more than that. We can really define worship uh, truly as engaging with God. Engaging with God on His terms and by the means that He makes possible. In the Old Testament, um, of course, praise was, uh, was part of worshiping God. But you could not worship God without first coming to Him through sacrifice through the blood of a substitute that took your place, that bore your sin. By the time you get to the New Testament, Paul describes New Testament worship in much the same language. Romans 12 opens up with a description of what New Testament, New Covenant worship is like, where New Covenant worshipers now come and present themselves as living sacrifices. We sang that in our first song. You offer yourself as a living sacrifice, meaning our entire life is an offering to the Lord. That's how you worship. That's how you worship. And in a corporate context, 
that the primary way that we express our worship as a church, you would think, well, it's singing, of course. I mean, we just sung five songs this morning. Not, not how Paul describes worship. Right after he talks about presenting your bodies as a living offering, he then goes in to describe what corporate worship looks like. And the primary means of corporate worship for the church is through the exercising of the, of the gifts that God's given you by serving each other in the body. So if you come to church and you sing and you take and then you leave, but you don't give, you don't serve, you really haven't worshipped corporately the way the New Testament describes worship. Let's sink in for a minute. Praise, on the other hand, is something different. Praise is, is to ascribe honor, to ascribe worth to someone or something. And a, from a biblical perspective, praise is something that doesn't begin on the outside, it begins on the inside. Praise begins in the heart. It begins in the heart starting with inward joy. So if we could think about praise as a tree, we could really talk about joy in your heart being the seed that germinates and grows into the tree of praise. That's what praise is. At the center of biblical praise is inward joy. And why do we have joy? What causes us to have joy in our hearts? Well, listen to the words of Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah 61 verse 10. He says, I will greatly rejoice in Yahweh. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Why? For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Our salvation is what brings us our joy. That's the source of it. We are given a joy of supernatural proportion through our salvation, through Christ, through the Holy Spirit, rot in the heart, so that uh, Paul can command us in Thessalonians 5.16 to rejoice always. And that's not a kind of rejoicing that you can do without God. It comes from our experience of, of having our sin lifted off our back, of having it slide off at the cross the way Christians' burden slid off in Pilgrim's Progress. So joy and, and praise are companions. They are close friends. We could say that praise is what rises spontaneously from the basic mood of joy. So as joy finds its culmination, as it, as it finds its realization, it, it can't help but bubble out and what comes out is praise. That's, it's joy out loud. That's what praise is. Joy, we could say, is our enjoyment of God. You can't en- have joy in God without enjoying Him. And it reaches a climax as we express that through praise. C.S. Lewis put it this way, Therefore, praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment of God. It is its appointed consummation. It com- in commanding us to glorify Him, God is inviting us to enjoy Him. I love that. And so it's no surprise we find the constant theme in the Bible is praise. You look at Ephesians chapter 1, that great paean of, of, of blessing to God who has Father, Son, and Holy Spirit orchestrated and planned from the foundations of the earth our redemption in Christ, executed in Christ and applied by the Holy Spirit. And three times, what does he say in that passage? To the praise of his glory. Verse 6 Verse 12, verse 14, to the praise of His glory. The end of our redemption is to the praise of God's glory. So why is praise a privilege? It's because we get to praise Him. We get to. It's our privilege to praise the God who has clothed us in the garments of salvation. That's why it's a privilege. Because it flows out of a heart that's over flowing with joy and thankfulness to God for what He's done for us. So praise is a privilege, but it's also an expectation. And there's no getting around that here. If you look back at our psalm, praise the Lord. That is a command. There's no getting around it. That is an imperative in the Hebrew. Hallelujah is not an exclamation. It's not a celebratory response like my mom was sick, she got well, praise the Lord. It's not like that. Praise the Lord is a command. 
It's an enjoinder for you to praise as your privilege and as the expectation of those who have been given so much. It's even extending into the next line. If you see, praise the Lord, all nations, extol Him, all peoples, extol. It's a word that is linked to praise, but it's even more specific than that. Extol means to um, express your praise in a specifically verbal way. It's to, to praise out loud, to make it public. We see that in how it's used in other passages. In Psalm 63, verse 3, it's, uh, it, it says, Because your steadfast love is better than, than life, my lips will extol you or praise you. Psalm 145, verse 4, One generation shall commend your Uh, your works to another. There's something verbal about this where it's being passed on. It's not being being hidden. It's not personal. It's not individual. This is not something you do in your prayer closet. This is something you do in public. Warren Wiersbe says this word basically means to brag about God. I love that. There's an expectation that those who are recipients of God's love will bubble over in praise. So the question then comes, and this is what's kind of revealing of what's in our heart here, because sometimes, uh, you know, maybe you've come here today and you're like, I don't really feel like praising today. I don't, I don't feel like singing. I mean, after all, one of the ways that we praise as a church, we worship through service. That's the primary expression of our worship. But our praise, how do we praise as a congregation? We sing We sing to each other. We sing to God. But what are we doing? We're publicly expressing our gratitude, our our view of God, how worthy he is of honor and praise. We're doing that publicly. So, you know, if if you say, well, I I don't really feel like singing to get, I'll I'll sing next week. Eh, It's just not in me today. There's, There's some diagnoses that might have to happen. A praiseless uh, Christian, uh, a Christian that's not motivated to praise is maybe diagnosed as one who's lost its joy. Chronic joylessness in the Christian life really points even to something deeper, and that's maybe a loss of gratitude, maybe a, a forgetting of the past. You think of um, Jesus' words to the, the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2. You know, you're doing all these things right. You're a church that has great discernment. You've got great theology. You're doing this. You're doing that. Everything looks good on the outside, but I've got one problem. You've lost your first love. You've lost your first love. All this has become duty. You know, you're reading, your Bible study, your prayer life. You're, you're getting together. You're even serving, and you've got theology. You're reading theology, but, but the, the joy is gone. Joy is gone. So he says to the church, remember where you've come from. Go, go back, go back. Remember what, what your heart was overflowing with when, when that, that burden first slid off your back, when the lights came on and you realized what Christ had really done for you. Go back and remember. Refine your joy, rekindle your joy out of gratitude for what God has done. And then you will find that you have a desire to praise. You will find it irresistible to brag to others about God because you remember again. Maybe that's you. As we go on in this psalm, we're going to discover something very interesting here. Because as we move from praise's privileged expectation, we move to a second point, and that's praise's unlikely participants. Praise's unlikely participants. And I say unlikely because look specifically here in verse 1 at who is addressed by this command. Praise the Lord All you nations. All you nations. And then in the next line, we come across a similar command. Extol him, all you peoples. This is the only place in the Old Testament where the command to praise the Lord is actually addressed to the nations. I find that fascinating. 
There's no discrimination here. The call is universal. All nations, all peoples, or better tribes here. It's, it seems that this word, it's a, it's a loan word from Aramaic actually, and it's, uh, it seems to indicate something of the differentiation of, of uh, people groups based on ethnicity. So regardless of your geopolitical identity or your nation or your ethnic identity, they're all being commanded and called to praise the Lord. And... Uh, to understand why this is such an unlikely group of people to respond to this positively, we, under, we need to understand a little bit of what the Bible says about the nations. Um, and to do that, uh, I want to take us back to uh, the first psalm in this, um, in this collection called the Egyptian Hillel. So go back to Psalm 113. And uh, in verse 4 of Psalm 113, the psalmist uh, says a very definitive statement about God. He says, The Lord is high above all nations, and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? Now, this is a, this is a statement about God's majesty, of His sovereignty, of His authority. It's, a, it's clearly written from an Israelite perspective. So it reflects a right worldview where God is, um, is understood to be in complete control. The nations answer to him. That's the perspective of the Bible. Obviously, that's the right perspective. It's the biblical perspective. It's not the perspective of the nations, though. <laughs> it's not their perspective at all. And uh, to get their perspective, um, look just a couple um, psalms later in Psalm 115. And in Psalm 115, in verse 2, the psalmist makes this statement, Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Where is their God? This is a, is a mocking statement. It's a statement that is dripping with contempt. This is what the nations think of Yahweh. They mock Israel. They mock Israel for worshiping an invisible God. They mock Israel for having a God who can't protect them from calamity, who, who can't seem to protect them from the hand of the Babylonians. And uh, even now at the writing of this psalm, most likely, Israel is under the thumb of the Persian Empire. They can't do anything without the consent of the Persian king. Even rebuilding the temple and rebuilding Jerusalem only comes at the consent of the Persian king. And so the nations say, where is their God? They mock. It's actually very similar to what Elijah did on Mount Carmel. If you remember his interaction with the prophets of Baal, he mocks them. He says, cry out. He's a god. Maybe he's amusing himself or relieving himself. Or he's on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep, must be awakened. I mean, there's mockery going on, dripping sarcasm. I guess when you're a prophet, you can use sarcasm and not get in trouble. He was mocking these prophets because they were, were crying out to a God who wasn't there. Well, now in Psalm 115, we see that the nations are doing the exact same thing against Israel. Where is their God? He's not there. He can't do anything for them. But the psalmist has an answer. Look in verse 3. Our God, he says, is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Wow. That's an amazing statement. It's a statement of complete faith, complete confidence and trust that though our God isn't here, we can't see Him. He hasn't made His abode on the earth. Nevertheless, He is in control, complete control. What you call absence, we call divine sovereignty. Psalmist goes on and then turns it right back on the nations. We find the underlying issue. We see where their faith and their trust really lies. Where do they trust in? Well, look at verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold. The work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound with their throat. Then he says this, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. I mean, this is a passage that really summarizes the spiritual problem of the nations. Their gods are lifeless. Their gods are powerless. It should be obvious. They have appendages just like men, but they don't do anything for the God. 
They have a mouth, eyes, ears, nose, hands, feet, throat, but it's all an illusion. It's powerless. They're lifeless statues, and yet the nations follow them and they trust in them. And so, in a sense, they become just like the idols that they worship, deaf, dumb, and blind. That's the nations. That's the spiritual conditions of the nations. Summarized maybe by the words of David in Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh, against his Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That is the nations. Open rebellion against God. They despise God. They despise his authority over them. They don't want it. They want to be free. And they so badly desire this that they vainly plot to overthrow God, specifically through his mediated rule through his Messiah. So now I th- maybe you're beginning to uh, understand why I say that these are unlikely participants. <laughs> they don't want to praise God. They want to be free of God. This began all the way back in the biblical narrative, all the way back and go back to Genesis chapter five or uh, 10 where the first instance of the word nation is used. It's tracing the development of all the people groups, the languages. The nations began then. And even the evil of the nations culminated in the Valley of Shinar, where the Tower of Babel was constructed as a complete defiance against God and His authority. That is the nations. You could say, really, that the story of the nations is simply a a story of man's rebellion played out on a global and a political level. Tower of Babel was just the first attempt at a national level to do what David described the, uh, the world's nations doing in Psalm 2, trying to be free of God. But, uh, you know, if we were to just leave it there, uh, that would be a pretty de- depressing um, worldview, isn't it? <laughs> uh, I'm glad the, wor- the Bible doesn't leave that there. It doesn't just portray the history of, uh, of the nations as just this long war between God and the nations. God has a heart for the nations. So much so that he purposed to bless all the nations of the earth and he chose one man, Abraham, and his offspring to bless all the nations and all the peoples of the earth. So by the time Jesus Christ comes, he's described by uh, Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 49.6 as a light to the nations, which is a beautiful picture of the gospel going out, a gospel of hope and, and salvation that's not just for his own people but for the nations. This is global. This is international in scope. This was God's plan from the very beginning that through Christ the nations would be converted. And that's what Paul says. If you look at, at a Romans chapter 15, turn over there for a minute. This is important. Romans chapter 15. And in verse 8, he says this For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So why did Christ enter the world? Why did he take human form, uh, submit himself to the Father, and uh, take on human flesh, humble himself, and uh, become a servant, even to the point of death on the cross? Why did he do that? Paul says, first off, it was to confirm what God had promised to the patriarchs. God had made promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, covenant promises. He was fulfilling that. But look at the other. The other was so that the Gentiles, the nations, might give glory to God. Why? Because of the mercy he had shown them in Christ, in the gospel. And, and, and he, even, he then goes on and he, he starts to prove this. He says, Christ came so that the nations would glorify God. And that's found even in my Bible, Paul says. And let me prove it to you by quoting from my Bible. 
And he begins to quote passages from the Old Testament. Look at verse 9. He says, That is as it written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. That's from 2 Samuel 22, verse 50. He goes on. And again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That's Deuteronomy 32, 43. And then he says in verse 11, And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. That is a direct quotation from our psalm, Psalm 117, verse 1. In other words, what Paul saw... In our psalm, in the command for the nations to praise the Lord, he saw the echoes of God's program of what Christ was going to do in the overarching plan of the ages. Paul saw in this psalm the foreshadowing of the gospel going out into all the nations in the Great Commission. So this wasn't just a... a, a little psalm about a hope that maybe one day the nations would praise. No, he saw this as the gospel in seed form in the psalms. The gospel going out to the world, fulfilling what God and his plan for the ages had all along, that all the nations might praise him and glorify him in Christ. So looking back at our text, I mean, it's really easy to see this as just this well-intentioned psalmist who is naively just having these aspirations that, um, that, that the nations are, are, are going, going to turn. After all, this is the, these are the nations that are in abject rebellion against the authority of God. They follow after lifeless idols. They are lifeless spiritually. And so this, this command, this hope for the nations is as realistic, it seems, as the land of rainbows and unicorns. But... Uh, He's directing this call to them because this is not just a hope. This is God's plan. This is the gospel going out. In the Old Testament version, it's the Great Commission. And the major question that we have to answer then is this. What will make the nations praise the Lord? Think about that. You have these nations... And they're not good spiritually, <laughs> just to put it like that. They're, they're not in a good spiritual place. They don't want to praise the Lord. So what will compel them to praise the Lord? Uh, that's what brings us to our final point. Praise is compelling motivation. And I think this is probably the most surprising thing in this psalm. It's not that the nations are called to praise the Lord, as unlikely as that is. The most surprising thing to me is the reason given for why the nations should praise the Lord. And look at Psalm, back at Psalm 117 in verse 2. Psalmist says, For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. The psalmist here is banking the praise of all the nations and all the peoples on God's steadfast love and his faithfulness. And these are some of the most important terms uh, in theology. Faithfulness is the word emeth in the Hebrew. It, It speaks of reliability. It speaks of God's trustworthiness, of his dependability. He is always reliable to do exactly what he said he's going to do. And uh, how long does that uh, apply for? It endures forever. He never gets tired of doing what he's promised. Aren't you thankful for that? That he doesn't just say, I've made this promise, but I'm just kind of done fulfilling it. No, his faithfulness endures forever. He is always reliable, always dependable to do what he's promised. The other word that he uses is uh, here, steadfast love. It's the word chesed in Hebrew. It's actually kind of fun to say. Say it with me, chesed. You've got to do it from the back of the throat. Chesed. It is probably one of the most important theological terms in the Old Testament. It speaks of God's love for his people, uh, but it's a love that's grounded in promise. That's why it's linked to faithfulness here. It's grounded in promise. It's a love that he shows to those he has entered into a covenant with. And so it's, it's a loyal love. It's a love that's based on promise and loyalty. A love that is... Uh, based on commitment. It's a love, get this, that is expressed most clearly throughout history 
as a love that covers sin, that has mercy on people who do not deserve mercy? How does God show his faithfulness and his loyalty to who he has covenanted himself to? He covers the sins of his people despite their sin. That's how he shows his loyalty and his love for them. That he doesn't withdraw his love when his people stumble. And just to demonstrate how generous, how merciful God is in in this kind of love, the psalmist talks about it as, as being this. He says, For great is his steadfast love towards us, which is really, I think, an unfortunate translation. This term is, it's, it, it speaks of a, 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 a mighty warrior who is, is, is victorious over his enemies. He, is, he has vanquished those who stand against him. He is mighty. It's used four times in Genesis chapter 7 to talk about the floodwaters prevailing over the earth so that they covered every, every point of the globe. It's a, it's a, it's a word that speaks of, uh, of strength, of might, of victory. And that's how he describes God's love over us. It is victorious over us. It's almost like it's a, it's a tower that towers over us in his love like the heavens. So maybe we could put it that way. His steadfast love towers over us. Uh, but notice the, the object of this love. It towers over us. That us isn't a, um, a generic us. It's not just us on the earth. This is a very specific us. This is referring to God's people, Israel. So in other words, what the psalmist is saying is that the nation should praise God. Why? Because God has shown incredible love and mercy and faithfulness to his people, Israel. How does that work? Why, should, why is that going to be something compelling for them? To answer that question... Uh, we have to go back and look at what this passage of Scripture is based on. Um, Psalm 117 is based on uh, this, one of the psalmist's favorite passages of Scripture. And I love that. It kind of humanizes this, uh, this psalmist. The psalmist, just like us, they have passages that... We, you have passages that, that speak to you, that just dig into your heart and are there. They're, uh, and, and the psalmists are the same. And so this psalmist had a passage of Scripture that, that left an indelible mark on him, and he wanted to write a song for the entire congregation of Israel to sing about. And this uh, particular psalm and the psalmist based uh, this psalm on Exodus 34, verse 6. So turn back there with me. Exodus 34. If you remember um, your Sunday school lessons as a kid, you'll remember this passage of Scripture. It turns out to be one of the most powerful theological statements of the Old Testament. You remember uh, Moses went um, up onto Mount Sinai to first receive the, um, the stone tablets with the commandments written on them, the summarization of uh, the covenant that they had just entered into with, with Yahweh. And uh, Israel, meanwhile, is growing impatient from his absence. They're down at the, the bottom of this mountain. He's gone, so in a, in a rash move led by Aaron, Moses' brother, the entire nation broke the covenant that they had just made with God. <laughs> They collected gold from the people. They formed a calf out of it. It was supposed to represent Yahweh. I mean, this was flagrant sin. This was, this was outright high treason against God. He had just rescued them out of Egypt. They were, they were slaves. He had freed them and made his, him his own. And now they're rebelling against their new master. And so naturally, this, this uh, sparks God to anger. He threatened to uh, Moses that he was going to annihilate the whole lot of them, restart with him. And Moses, if you remember, intercedes for the people. He appeals to God on the basis of his promises. He promises that he had made to to Abraham. And you can't do this, Lord. Your your, your reputation will be completely soiled. You've made promises. You have to keep them. And, of course, the Lord had no intention of not keeping him. He responds. He relents from destroying them. He even determines to renew the covenant that they had just broken, amazingly. But uh, he was going to remove his presence, though. 
He was no longer going to dwell among them. And Moses realized that that can't happen. How, how is Israel supposed to be a nation that is set apart from all these godless nations if, if its own God won't dwell in their midst? This is what makes them unique, what makes them his people. You can't do this. And he recognized that. He appeals again. He intercedes for them. Uh, and, and in the process of that intercession, he makes a personal request. He wants to, to know God's ways. He wants to see God's glory so he asks the Lord if, if he can see God's glory. Amazingly, God gives him a glimpse. No more than that, just a glimpse. He'd die if he saw his face, so he's just going to see his back. So uh, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 34, we see how this unfolds. It says in verse 1, Yahweh said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up to the in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. No, let, let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as Yahweh had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. So what is going to be revealed here is the name of Yahweh. What stands behind? What is the meaning of his name? That's what he is going to reveal here. Beginning of verse 6. We get to our psalmist's favorite verse. Verse 6. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed Yahweh. Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. You want to know what God is like? This is his self-description. This is who he says he is. Merciful and gracious. Not quit quick-tempered, but, but slow to get angry. It's like a, a good parent with a child. He's patient. He doesn't just blow up at every little thing. He's very patient, and he is fiercely loyal. His covenant love overflows towards his people. It cannot be contained. His faithfulness is the same way. As our psalmist puts it, his love and his faithfulness towers over them. And how does he show his loyal love? How does he show that he loves his people? He forgives iniquity. He forgives transgression and sin. He covers rebellion. He has mercy on the sinner. He does that when he sees repentance, when there's brokenness, but he, is, he does hold willful, obstinate sinners accountable. Those are the ways of Yahweh. That is who Yahweh is. That is the meaning of his name. To call upon the name of Yahweh is to call upon that God. And this passage left an indelible mark on God's people. In Psalm 103, David basically writes a poetic commentary on this, on this passage uh, and, and gets to the very heart of what this passage means. Look at Psalm 103. I know we're jumping around, but uh, it's just a test of your sword drills. Psalm 103, verse 7. It says, He has made His ways known to Moses, His acts to the, to the people of Israel. Yahweh is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion on his children, so Yahweh shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Why should the nations praise the Lord? Why should they join in the anthem declaring God's goodness and God's greatness? This is why. 
the great compelling motivation for, uh, for the nations is that they see what kind of God that Yahweh is like. They see how he is merciful. They see how compassionate he is. Even when his people act so treacherously towards him, they, they witness how he corrects them like a loving parent, how he forgives their sins, how he, he shows them love that's rooted in deep commitment. His fierce loyalty to keep his promises no matter how sinful and rebellious they are. And that's enough to make every, any nation say, I want Yahweh to be my God. I mean, you see how powerful a testimony that is. The testimony of God's grace, not just in the life of a nation, but in the life of an individual. For sinners around you to see God's mercy on you, a sinner undeserving of grace, and yet God has been so gracious to each one of us that it's compelling for someone to say, if they can, if they can be forgiven, maybe I can too. If, if God can show them mercy, maybe they can show me mercy. Maybe there's hope for me. It's compelling, it's powerful. Demonstrated in God's giving his own son. John 1.14, Apostle John said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You know, Moses saw the back of God. He just got a taste of the glory. Look at that. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full, abounding in grace, abounding in loyal love and truth and faithfulness. Echoes of our very psalm. Echoes of Exodus 34, 6. There's power in that. When someone knows that you're no better than they are, you've, you've received mercy, you've repented, you, but you've received mercy. You don't deserve it. Neither do they. That can make the worst of sinners say there's hope for me too. And that's the point of the psalmist. If there's hope for Israel, maybe there's hope for the nations. So praise the Lord, all you nations. Because the Lord is a God who can show you the mercy that he's shown to Israel. It's a good reminder to us not to underestimate the, temp- the testimony of God's mercy, right? Mercy in our own lives. Mercy and, and its testimony outward to other people. And it's also a warning. It's a warning not to squander it. You know, we're experiencing times of uh, such turbulence um, nationally and societally. You know, morality is changing faster than the media can even keep up with. The, the ethics that are, have kind of the foundation of the nation that we live in are just completely flipped on their heads. And Looking around, I mean, it's absolutely clear, sin runs rampant. Romans 1 is being realized and fulfilled before our eyes. I mean, we see it everywhere. We see it everywhere we look. Society is in a downward spiral of uh, degradation. And I I just want to warn you to to be careful, to, to watch yourself, because here's what can happen if you see that, and that's what you dwell on, is what happens is... um, that can have a very hardening effect on you. If you let your heart calcify towards lost people, it it can widen the gap between you and them to such an extent that in your own heart, um, you, you you kind of become a bitter, cold Christian that just says, I'd rather see the world burn for their sin. They deserve it. There's a prophet in the Old Testament who struggled with that. He was called by God to go and preach a message of judgment to a city that had shown absolutely no mercy to his own people. It was a wicked, violent nation. They were notoriously vicious and bloodthirsty. They had conquest on the brain. They ruthlessly terrorized their enemies. They would flay the, the bodies of their enemies and hang the skins on the walls of their cities to demonstrate what was going to happen to anyone who defied them. It was pure wickedness. And uh, this prophet was called to go. He was called to go and warn them that if they don't repent, then God was going to destroy the city. But this prophet didn't want to go. He, He wanted to see them burn. 
He wanted to see them get their just desserts. And so he ran away. (laughs) Ran in the opposite direction, in fact. He got on a ship and went as far away as he could think of to go. God went after him. He dragged him back. He brought him to the brink of death and then revived him. He showed him mercy, graciously delivered him, and, and then he gave them the same command as before. Go. Preach to them. Warn them. But God's going to destroy this place if you don't repent. And this time he went. He went into the city. He told them exactly what God said. And amazingly, they listened. They listened. God saw that they had repented, that he withdrew the threat. And, uh, and listened to how this prophet responded. But it displeased Jonah. And he was angry. And he prayed to Yahweh and said, O Yahweh, Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting of disaster. I knew you were that way. That's why I left. Because I knew that if you saw that they repent, that you would show them grace and I don't want them to have grace. I want them to burn. He knew what God was like. He was bitter towards his enemy to the point where he he did not get what God was doing. He didn't understand why Israel even existed to bring blessing and salvation to the Gentiles. He had become so bitter that he wanted to see them burn. You don't want to be like Jonah. Bitter towards the world. You want to you want to have your heart softened. You want, you want your heart to beat with the heartbeat of God, and God's heartbeat is for the nations to hear and repent. You are recipients of that. Most of the people in this room, I won't have you raise hands, but just like most of you are Gentiles, not Jews. You are the recipients of the gospel call that is articulated in Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Well, you did praise this morning. That's the heartbeat of God. You want to have the heart of the psalmist who calls out to the nations, praise the Lord. Extol him, all you peoples. Repent. Repent. The Lord is gracious. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. He's overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. You've seen him show that to us. You've seen it. He's shown us grace and forgiven us more times than we can count. He's forgiven us. Even when we haven't deserved it, he can forgive you. So come, repent, and join in the chorus. Join in the anthem of the redeemed who praise God for his mercy and his grace. That's the call. And if you don't know the Lord today, I I especially appeal to you. On the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ, repent. Um, if, if he can show mercy to me, uh, a rotten sinner, um, he will show mercy to you. You just need to repent. You need to see your sin for what it is. You need to see God for who he is. And he promises that he will show you grace and he will show you mercy. If you cling to the cross, if you recognize that Jesus Christ in his death on the cross completely and utterly paid the price that you would have to pay otherwise. He took that away so that you can be reconciled to God and have a relationship with him again. If that's you, I just, I I appeal to you, consider the mercy of God. There will be a time when that mercy um, runs its course. And uh, it is appointed for man to die once and then to face judgment. So the time is now. Uh, Don't leave this room without making a decision.